5, which is on page 811 in your pew Bible, the black pew Bible that may be sitting next to you. Uh, this will be our last and our final sermon in Matthew chapter 5, and I hope and pray that God has used this chapter in your life to uh, show you more about himself, to reveal himself to you, to instruct you, to uh, encourage you. But this morning we find ourselves in the sixth and final uh, antithesis, or the sixth and final contrast, where Jesus contrasts for us a, a law from the Old Testament, and with the proper interpretation of it. So in this morning's passage, we come to that sixth and final contrast, and this contrast is really not like any of the other ones that we've gone through to this point. This is a significant contrast, to say the least. Not to diminish any of the other ones that Jesus has brought up to this point, but this final law is what Jesus is going to later refer to as what the entire Old Testament hangs upon. In Matthew chapter 22, this lawyer comes up to Jesus and he asks him, he says, what's the greatest commandment in the entire law? Okay, so this is, a, this is a Jewish lawyer. He knows a lot about the Jewish law. He knows about the Bible in general. And he asks Jesus this question. What is the greatest commandment in the entire law? And Jesus basically responds with this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are to love your neighbor on, as yourself. That, that this is what the entire Old Testament hangs upon. But, but not only that. So, so not is it only the entire Old Testament hangs upon these words. But later on in the New Testament, in the book of James, we see that James refers to this law, that we need to love our neighbor, as the royal law. So when Jesus brings this final antithesis up, it is incredibly important to grasp and to understand what it means if the entire Old Testament hangs upon it, and if James calls it the royal law. There is an obvious weight to it. There is an obvious importance to it. So with that in mind, let's look to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what, are you do, what, are you, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I'm curious what comes into your mind as you see these words that Jesus expects us to love our enemies. For most of us here this morning, loving our enemies is not the first thing on your mind. I'm sure that loving your enemies is not on your to-do list for this week. Go to work, get the kids, get the groceries, love your enemies. That's not typically how we think. And that's because loving our enemies is not something that is natural to us. So when I was pouring my coffee this morning, even though I'm preaching this sermon, I'm not thinking, love your enemies. It's great. Love your enemies. It doesn't, it doesn't come to us. It isn't something that we want to do. But it's exactly what Jesus is calling us to do this morning. 
So the law that Jesus brings up here has two pieces to it. And the first piece is explicitly found in the Old Testament. You see it really all over the place. You see it in the New Testament a lot too. But you see it all over. Love your neighbor. and we, So that is certainly scriptural. But then there's a second half to it. Did you notice? He said, and hate your enemy. Did God ever say that? Does the Old Testament ever say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? So is, is Jesus speaking a falsehood here? How do, how, do we, how do we reconcile this? We know the first part is true. We know that we're to love our neighbor. But what about that second piece? Did the Old Testament really say that we're to hate our enemy? You never see that anywhere in Scripture. God never commands the people of Israel, you guys all need to just hate your enemies. So what does he mean here? For the answer, we need to simply remember what Jesus' intention is here by bringing up all of these laws. Remember, he's, he's seeking to correct a faulty understanding of these laws. And the people of Jesus' day had so twisted this law that, they were, that we're looking at this morning to mean that we need to love our neighbor, presumably meaning other Jews, but it's okay to hate our enemies. So they say, okay, I need to love my neighbor, but everybody else is fair game for my hate. So this is how far that they had misconstrued and perverted the law of God. They assumed that this law had racial lines. So it was more natural for them to say, okay, I'm fine with loving other Jews, but everybody else is fine to be the object of my hate. So Jesus, in his initial statement of the law, has quickly summed up for us the faulty understanding that his listeners had. And now he's going to correctly interpret it for them. So when Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, he's stating what they're thinking. Yep, I'm supposed to love my enemies, but, or I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but it's okay to hate my enemies. But look what he says in verse 44. He, he properly interprets it for them. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So the law says, love your neighbor. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Remember, Jesus is flipping everything over here. Which, what was, what was once common law before, everybody knew you need to love your neighbor. This is now being shown to mean that you actually not even just love your neighbor, but you're to love your enemies. So it's not as simple as it used to be. The stakes have been upped. Just like it's not okay to simply not commit adultery with your body, you're not to commit adultery in your heart. Just like it's not uh, enough to simply not kill people, you're not to hate people in your heart. And so here Jesus, in this final contrast, is saying that it's not enough to simply love your neighbor, but as people of my kingdom, you're to live radically different than you always have, and you're to love your enemies. So we have a couple questions to answer here. First, what does Jesus mean when he uses the word love? And second, what does Jesus mean when he uses the word enemy? Well, let's begin, let's begin there. Let's begin with enemies. Who is your enemy? Do you have any enemies? Any enemies? You might not be like David in the Old Testament who was running throughout the whole countryside of Israel and King Saul is chasing him and trying to kill him. I doubt any of you are hiding in caves from your enemies like David was. But chances are, whatever face came to your mind when you think of the question, who's my enemy, that's the closest thing to it. So the reference Jesus makes to enemies could be personal enemies. 
It could be enemies that the Jews would have had at this time and in this context where Jesus is teaching. For those of us who are part of the kingdom of God, Christians, it could mean enemies of God's people. In our own country, we haven't really uh, been persecuted uh, like many of our brothers and sisters have throughout the world. Millions who belong to the kingdom of God are constantly being persecuted by their own governments or radical religious groups or their own cultures on a daily basis. And what does Jesus call them to do? What does Jesus call us to do? He calls us to love our enemies. Jesus' call to us and to them is to pray for those who are persecuting us. So we all have enemies of some sort, whether those are enemies against us personally or whether those are enemies of Christ's kingdom. And Jesus tells us that we are to love and to pray for them. But we all have a skewed, as Americans, we have a skewed idea of what love is. Our idea of love, we fall in and out of love with things all the time. We fall in and out of love with people. We fall in and out of love with things and TV shows, with the latest fads, with technology, with our sports teams. We say that we love just about everything, but that's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the kind of love that we have for things that tickle our fancy, but the kind of love that we have for things that don't. So the kind of love expected here has nothing to do with being uh, gooey over your enemies or having some sort of emotional feelings for them or having even some sort of temporary care for them. The idea is that we love our enemies as a matter of our will, as a matter of choice, as a matter of seeing them as made in God's image and casting our love upon them whether we think they deserve it or not. So Jesus is not calling us to give love a try. Jesus is calling us to the choice of incessant love for our enemies. So let's connect this with the passage that we looked at last week. Last week we looked at um, a couple other contrasts and Jesus brings up retaliation, that we're not to retaliate. So Jesus says when somebody slaps you across the face, that you're not to slap them back. And I think most of us, when we're sitting there listening to that Contrast would say, okay, somebody slaps me in the face, I could probably keep my hands to my side, I could probably hold myself back from slapping them. But here we see that that is not quite enough. Listen to what Augustine said. He said, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. And how true is that? You see, it's one thing to restrain yourself from retaliating and slapping somebody back, but it's a whole nother ball game when it comes to loving the person that just slapped you across the face. And maybe for us, you can't remember the last time you were slapped in the face. Maybe you've never been slapped in the face, but you can remember the last time you were stabbed in the back. And what you need to recognize this morning is that you're not called to retaliate and stab another person in the back, but you're called to love them. So the way we're to retaliate when our enemies do something is not to retaliate sinfully, but to retaliate positively with love and with prayer. This is the kind of difference that the gospel makes in the lives of Christians. The gospel produces hearts that delight in loving our enemies. And that's because the gospel causes us to follow Jesus. And so what better example do we have than Jesus when it comes to loving our enemies? 
As those who were once enemies of God, He has set His love upon us, so should we set our love upon our enemies. Do do you realize that? Do, Do you think about this? Those of you who are Christians, and you claim Christ, and you trust in Him, do you think about the fact that before God opened your eyes to see the gospel, you were His enemy? And if you are here this morning, you haven't accepted Him, this is your state. Colossians 1 says of the Colossians who, who were Christians at this time, but he says what they used to be, you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So if you're not a Christian here today, you are not simply in some kind of neutral position with your relationship with God. You are not Switzerland with God. You are God's enemy. But for those here who are Christians... One of the encouraging things is that Jesus isn't asking you to do something that he himself isn't willing to do. Jesus laid himself down for his enemies. Not for people who were pretty good. Not for people who had it together. Not for people who just did bad things every now and then. But for people who were his enemies. So love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45 tells us why. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to be a son or a daughter? Many of you here are are sitting next to your mother. And you're accepted by mom. You're loved by mom. When you were in diapers, she patiently changed you and fed you. And did countless acts of kindness, of grace on your behalf. And you don't realize how much she has done for you until you're in that position of having your own. And then having to do everything that she did for you. And you just have no idea what she has done for you. You are the furthest thing from being an enemy of your mother. And that is what position we are in with God To a greater degree. If you are a son or a daughter of God. Then the same is true of you. You're loved and you're accepted by God. On behalf of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Jesus was willing to love his enemies and to die for them. And if we are sons and daughters of the father. We will follow after his example. Loving our enemies. Praying for those who persecute us. So that we may be sons and daughters of God, But the key to this whole love thing is that the love that we have for our enemies is not the kind of love that we can muster up on our own. This is the kind of love that God has given us. This is the kind of love that has no bounds. The kind of love that is dispensed to both the children of God and the enemies of, your, of God. And if you're wondering how God treats his enemies, look at the second half of verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We call this common grace. God dispenses a common grace to all people. He allows his sun to shine on everybody, whether they are enemies of his or not. He allows his rain to fall on the wicked and on the good. And this is gracious. So it's not like you're just you're driving down the road, you go down the Reed Road, and you're like, oh, it's sunny over the pastor's house, but oh, it's thundering and stormy over the evil person's house across the street. God doesn't work that way. He has this common grace. He, he lets his sun shine and grow the crops of, of the evil and on the good. 
This is the kind of God that we serve. This is the kind of love that he dispenses to the evil and to the good. And so should we. So my friends, this is not some sort of good advice from Jesus. This isn't some bit of self-help. This is a command to those of us who make up the kingdom of God. Christians love their enemies. Christians follow the example of their heavenly father and dispense love and prayers on behalf of their enemies. And they do this because true Christ-like love changes us. You can imagine what it would have been like for those listening to Jesus here for the first time as they connected to everything he's already said as in Matthew chapter 5. So they'd be thinking to themselves, this means that we're supposed to love those who persecute us and revile us and say all kinds of evil against us. We're to love the Pharisees who are constantly lording over us. We're to love the person who slaps us across the face. We're to love the person who sues us over something as simple as our shirt. And Jesus says, absolutely. You're to love the unlovable. You're to love your enemies. Because people of my kingdom don't act according to their own natural desires. They act according to the king's desires. In fact, in verse 46, he shows the way that normal people live. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. In other words, what he's saying is this. It's easy to love those who love us back. Isn't that true? It's easy to love somebody who loves us back. It's easy to greet our brothers. It's easy to greet and interact with those people who are like us. But Jesus is not calling us to this simple standard of loving our brothers and sisters or those who are like us or those of our nationality or our race or our religion. Jesus is calling us to the radical rejection of of our natural sinful disposition of hating our enemy to the risky business of loving those who hate us. Because the natural man, even tax collectors and Gentiles, love one another. They greet one another. They enjoy one another. But you're to be more than that. And what Jesus is doing here by bringing up tax collectors and Gentiles is giving a couple examples to his listeners of those who they hated. The Jews hated the tax collectors and often hated Gentiles, which is basically a way of saying a non-Jew. We just made it through tax season as of last month, didn't we? Right, about a month ago, we were all making sure our taxes were filed, and I'm sure nobody enjoys filing their taxes and all of that, particularly if you know you're not getting anything back or if you think you're going to have to pay something in. But the tax collectors in Jesus' day were basically the scum of the earth to the Jews, they were hated. Tax collectors were basically people who had defected from being Jews in order to gather taxes for the Roman Empire, which was controlling Israel during this time. So what would often happen is the tax collectors, they would, they would jack up the prices a little bit, and then they would skim money off the top for themselves. And the Jews hated them for it because they couldn't do anything about it. 
But again, it's not like Jesus is asking these people to do anything that he isn't willing to do. When he says to love your tax collectors, he isn't saying something that he himself isn't willing to do. He himself is willing to love tax collectors as well. So he's not stepping back in some sort of supervisor mode and saying, all you little people, you, you need to make sure you're loving your tax collectors, but I don't, I don't need to have anything to do with them. Do you know who wrote the book of Matthew? A guy named Matthew. But do you know what Matthew's occupation was? He was a tax collector. So Jesus tells us to love our enemies. He gives an example of a tax collector as one of our enemies that we're to love. And then in Matthew chapter 9, four chapters from where we are right now, Jesus goes out and he sees this guy named Matthew sitting in his tax booth and he says, follow me. And for the next several years, Jesus spends his life pouring into Matthew, teaching Matthew how not to be a collector of taxes, but a collector of souls for the kingdom of God. And that's the goal in loving our enemies. That we set our love upon them, and we teach them the gospel, and we teach them how to follow Jesus, thus making the person who was once our enemy into our brother and sister and a child of God. So in summary, what is the expectation that Christ has for those who are a part of his kingdom? When it comes to this contrast that we've looked at this morning and the others that we've been going through, what is Jesus' expectation for those who make up his kingdom? Look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 20 of Matthew 5, Jesus says that if our righteousness doesn't go beyond the Pharisees, then we have no shot in entering the kingdom. And here in verse 48, he even jacks it up even more and says that you need to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if you're anything like me, you, you, you read that and you think to yourself, how can that be? There, there is no way that I can be perfect, even in some sort of earthly sense, never, let alone being perfect as God is perfect. Especially as we've been going through Matthew chapter 5, we realize how far we fall short. We realize how sinful we truly are. Because you and I know that we have murdered people in our hearts with anger. We have committed adultery in our hearts and lusting after somebody. We know we've been untruthful in oath-making. And we know that we've been sinfully retaliating and all the rest. We know that we're sinners, and Jesus does too. So how in the world can he put the expectation onto sinners to be perfect as God is perfect? And the answer is in the cross. Where Jesus, as the one who truly was perfect took upon himself the sins of those who were not perfect and gave to them his righteousness. So there's this beautiful transaction on the cross where Jesus takes all of our bad and he gives us all of his good so that when when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sin-drenched clothes that we were born in. He sees us in the perfect robes of righteousness that were won for us by Jesus. This is good news. This is the best news that you will ever hear. If, if you're here without Christ today and you know that you're not perfect, then accept the perfect righteousness of Christ on your behalf attained by Christ. This is the only way that we can stand before God as perfect. Is if we have accepted the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Otherwise, we remain His enemy. 
And for now, he may allow the sun to shine upon us. He may allow the rain to fall upon our crops. But we still stand deserving of the punishment due to the enemies of God if we do not trust in Jesus Christ. As I studied over this passage this week, reflecting on the fact that Jesus is upping the stakes here, it was easy to view this law almost as just even more cumbersome and more restricting. To focus on the fact that this pushes us out of our comfort zone and makes us have to work harder and makes us have to do something that doesn't naturally come easy to us. Loving our enemies just doesn't come natural and it feels like a restriction. But the more I thought about it, I began to see that the opposite is true. That to love our enemies is not restricting, but it's liberating. It's not binding, it's freeing. We don't have to worry about who we should love or who we shouldn't love. We just simply, as Christ did, love those with whom we come in contact with. We love our friends, we love our family, we love our co-workers, we love our churches. And as Jesus states here, we love our enemies. So we're free to love without caution. You even see, as, uh, you, you see even as we pursue this command of Christ and And by His grace, we seek to obey Him. We're going to fall in this. So we will strive, we will will try by God's grace to obey and to honor Him in loving our enemies, but we're going to fail. Because we will never perfectly love our enemies. But Jesus' love for His enemies did not fail. It did not fall short. He perfectly loved His enemies. And so if you're a Christian here today, then the perfect obedience of Christ to this law is given to you. And you stand before God as though you have perfectly loved your enemies. Let me close with a biblical example. A lawyer comes to Jesus. Another lawyer comes to Jesus. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? When it comes to this law to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, then how in the world should I know who my neighbor is? And Jesus goes on to tell this man a story. He tells him of a a Jewish guy who gets beaten up and he's robbed and he's left for dead. He's left on the side of the road. But good thing for this this half-dead Jewish man, a priest walks by, right? And so he's lying there, this priest starts walking by, and you know, if he looked up and saw him, we don't know, but you would imagine if he did, he would be thrilled. Oh great, a priest is walking by. Surely this priest is going to help me, right? He's going to help me get healed. Nope. Then Jesus says that a Levite walks by, which is basically a, another individual who worked on behalf of the Lord. Surely this Levite, a, a servant of the Lord, is going to, to help me, right? No. But then Jesus says that a Samaritan came upon the dying man. And the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Again, this is one of those like racial divide. Nope, we're good. Not going to love the Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered half-blood Jews and they just hated. So they were considered the enemies. They wouldn't have had compassion on a Samaritan. But the Samaritan sees this half-dead Jewish man and he goes up to him. And he grabs him, has compassion, picks him up, throws him onto his animal. He binds up his wounds. He brings him to this inn so that he can be cared for. And he said that he would refund any cost it took to get this man healthy again. So the Samaritan didn't simply love his neighbor. He loved his enemy. 
After telling this story to the lawyer, the lawyer looks up to Jesus and he says, well, in in response to Jesus' question, out of these three, who loved this man? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And that's God's expectation for us this morning. To go and to do likewise. Jesus says the true and good Samaritan has come across those of us who were his enemies, dead on the side of the road. He set his love and compassion upon us. And at his own cost, his own cost of dying for us, he caused us to come alive. And he continually sustains us by his mercy. So that is what it truly means to love your neighbor. So let's this week go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your mercies to us. You are so good in how you have loved us as your enemies, completely undeserving of this kind of love, completely undeserving of even the rain falling on us and the sun shining on us. But you give that to us liberally. And Lord, we thank you for saving us for making us whole, for continually helping us to become more like Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as a result of this sermon, that we will seek out ways to, by choice, love our enemies. In Christ's name.